Thank you for joining us today and a big thank you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. Karen and I have been trialing their designs for a few months and we can happily recommend them. All designs are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Today we're talking about IBS, FODMAPs and running. It's estimated that one in three runners report symptoms of exercise-induced IBS-like symptoms. And one management approach is using a low FODMAPs diet, which is our focus today. And we're also going to share with you our approach to investigating the root causes of IBS. Hello and welcome to She Runs, Eats, Performs, the podcast for female runners of all abilities. Please join Karen Campbell and Aileen Smith, nutritionists, friends and runners, who are here to help you translate sports nutritional science into easy to apply tips and plans, helping you enjoy peak running performance and especially adding in the female factors every woman needs to know to be a healthy runner. The suggestions we make during this episode are for a guidance and advice only and are not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. If you have any concerns regarding your health, please contact your healthcare professional for advice as soon as possible. If you'd like help from Karen and Ailey to design a personalised sports nutrition plan for your running, please contact them at Runners Health Hub. Welcome back. I'm Karen and I'm here again with Aileen. And as always, we're going to kick off this episode by sharing something personal with you about our nutrition or running before we move on to discuss today's topic, which is focusing on IBS, FODMAP and running. So Aileen, today's question to you is, um, it's all about exercise-induced IBS symptoms. Is this something that you've experienced yourself or have you worked with clients who experience it? Uh, well, fortunately, it's not something I've experienced myself. And I, I think that's really because I've got quite a robust digestive system. Uh, and I look after my des- digestive system quite well nutritionally. Um, but having said that, I, I think I run relatively short distances in comparison to, you know, the marathon and ultra runners. So potentially, if I was going to increase my mileage, then maybe I would suffer from those kind of symptoms. Um, but with regarding clients, yes, I've worked with many clients who've got digestive complaints um, generally, you know, in general everyday life as well as exercise-induced. Um, and I, I have to say that um, often these clients have got really complex strategies that they work around their symptoms. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that... Uh, you know, when we we look at uh, our conversation today, we'll be able to give people some ideas about how they can unravel what's going on around their symptoms uh, so that life can be a lot more simple. Mm -hmm. What about you, Karen? What's your experience? 
Yeah, I have to say, Aileen, that I've definitely experienced um, exercise-induced IBS on general digestive issues from time to time. And I have to say it it does tend to happen when I increase my mileage significantly. So when I'm training for more certainly the marathons and sometimes the ultras, or I find that sometimes when I try new foods and products in my training, it can trigger some um, IBS symptoms and then I have to pull back and and sort of realise that's not going to to help me. So move on to another product. And I have to say that I used to suffer with um, sort of GI, that gastrointestinal symptoms, much more in my early years of running when I used to run on empty. And I have to say I did that um, a lot. Um, but I have to say I am now much more informed, um, although, like I say, it can still happen from time to time. But generally, um, uh, my my uh, digestive system these days is pretty robust. But if it does happen, I generally can link it back to something that I've eaten or maybe drunk in the in the day before. And symptoms that I tend to experience include the likes of bloating, diarrhea, flatulence for me, and on occasion that abdominal cramping and and pains. So, but like I say, it doesn't happen quite so often now. And it is also a very common complaint um, amongst my running clients, I have to say. And there are lots of very different reasons for it occurring. Some actually, which which might come up in our conversation today and we can speak around that. But but yeah. yeah. Well, that's really encouraging, Karen. I think that, you know, you've sort of like gone through your history there and, and to know that, um, you know, you now have a more robust digestive system, yeah. which I know is down to how you've looked after yourself in the last decade, probably. So <laughs> encouraging for people to know yeah absolutely that it it does make a difference sort of just looking at um general lifestyle also what you're eating and when you're eating it as well that can be a trigger for some people okay Aileen so on that note let's get started on our topic which as we said earlier is about IBS FODMAPs and running now the reason we're talking about the subject today is because IBS symptoms do affect many runners as we said and these symptoms can be really unpleasant and actually disruptive for many people for their training and for their race schedules and um, and to overall running performance in the long term. Now, in the general population, it's estimated that 20% of the population experience IBS-like symptoms, which is really high, I think. And women are twice as likely as men to report having symptoms of IBS. Now, with regards to runners, Looking at a variety of different studies with different groups of runners, it appears that 30% or more in some instances reported symptoms of exercise-induced IBS symptoms. Gosh, that's, that's, a, that's a third of all runners who potentially experience yeah, it's a lot. Of it is. It, it's really high. It is a common issue, as I said before, um, and it's also a common issue discussed amongst the running community. And I have to say, my running group it is a topic of conversation, and um, and also has been a topic that we've covered in several episodes in one way or another. So going as far back as episode three 
episode 23, 31, and um, also more recently in episode 78. So if it is an area of interest for you or you're suffering in any way listening today, but also going back and listening to some of the um, information that we share in these other episodes would be really helpful. But for today, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss how the medical profession diagnoses IBS and what may lead to exercise-induced IBS. We'll review the research on nutritional approaches for managing IBS in runners. And we'll also then go on to share our approach to investigating the root causes of these symptoms with some food tip suggestions as well. So Aileen, could you maybe start by giving us an overview of IBS to begin with, just what it is? in a bit more detail. Yeah, yeah, sure. So IBS um, stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. Um, and it, a syndrome is really a collection of symptoms. So if you were going to consult with a medical profession, they would assess your symptoms against um, a set of criteria. Um, so, um, for instance, it might be the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence Guideline and their def- definition of IBS, uh, which is... Um, looks at abdominal pain or discomfort in association with an altered bowel habit that you've experienced for at least six months. And that would be in the uh, the absence of what they call alarm symptoms or, or signs. So they would be like more serious symptoms that might indicate there's a more serious problem going on. Um, or they might also um, measure you against something called the Rome uh, 4 criteria. So the Rome criteria was developed by a panel of international experts in the field of functional gastrointestinal disorders. So what your medical professional would do would be review the symptoms, your diet, probably your medical history and any warning signs and red flags. And they might also do a physical examination and perhaps some blood tests and stool tests. So, um, you know, they won't diagnose you without doing all these things. And I, I sometimes find, I don't know whether you find, Karen, that, you know, some clients say they've got IBS, but it's their their own, they've sort of self-diagnosed and it's not actually a medical diagnosis. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to um, get a bit of an idea about how the medical people would actually diagnose um, yeah. IBS. Absolutely. And I think you're right, Aileen. I think IBS is something that a lot of people do self-diagnose. They don't. And, and I'm not sure that a lot of people know that there is actually a, a, a definitive um, uh, way of determining whether somebody's got IBS or not, that there is a, a format that the medical profession use. But moving on from that, Aileen, you mentioned um, some symptoms, including abdominal pain and discomfort. Um, could you maybe expand on those a little bit to tell us a bit more about them? Yeah, well, I think the thing about IBS symptoms is they're different for everybody, but the typical symptoms that people would experience would, would be things like um, intestinal or stomach cramps and pain, perhaps bloating and flatulence. Um, you can have diarrhea and constipation, sometimes both, um, you know, during a period of time. You could have that alongside irregular bowel movements. And by that, I mean, you may be 
um, not going at the same time every day or maybe there's a number of days in between movements. Uh, some, sometimes people are going several times a day. Um, and the severity and the frequency of symptoms does vary from person to person. And as I said earlier, that the condition can be really problematic and pose really difficult practical issues which impact on quality of life and on day-to-day life. Um, and also, I think it's important to just point out that some of the IBF symptoms overlap with other more serious conditions. Um, so it's really important that you discuss the symptoms with a medical practitioner before you start making any dietary changes. And that's re- really, really important with, with any kind of health condition, but particularly with this um, and as we said, you know, there, there can be many underlying reasons leading to IBS and they're very much personal to the individual. Um, and I think we can maybe talk about how we as nutritional therapists approach getting to the root causes later on in the conversation, Karen, because I think it's quite important. Yeah, absolutely, Aileen. And like you said earlier, it can't really be underplayed just how disruptive IBS could be for some people. So Aileen, is is there any difference between the symptoms experienced by a person with a medical diagnosis and someone who experiences exercise-induced IBS? Well, I think the symptoms tend to be similar, but I think with exercise-induced IBS, the person might feel okay on a day-to-day basis, but the experience of the symptoms um, happen during an endurance run, um, which can be really disturbing and disruptive, as we've said. You know, there's nothing worse than thinking that you're not near a toilet when you need to go. Um, And the, the other sort of symptoms that, you know, typical uh, that runners talk about is, you know, the urgency to go. Um, they might find that they've got blood in stools. Um, they might also be feeling nauseous, have vomiting, belching, experience reflux and heartburn. So there's a whole load of, of exercise-induced symptoms that might not be typically IBS, but they're, they're um, related to the digestive system. Yeah, actually, Aileen, just you mentioning some of these words takes me back to when I used to experience it quite regularly. And it is, it's so debilitating when you're out in a long run. And like you say, if you can't get to somewhere to go to the to the toilet to relieve it, it is really, just can be quite distressing. So, so thinking about all these symptoms that, that people can experience, if we were going to get technical here, what is going on physiologically? physiologically to create this exercise-induced IBS symptoms? Well, it's thought there's a combination of things happening. So physiological um, issues, nutritional issues, mechanical and psychological factors are all involved. So the the physiological causes are attributed to two pathways. Uh, And the first is the circulatory gastrointestinal pathway. And that involves a reduction in blood flow to um, organs around the the abdomen area. So um, organs such as the stomach, the liver and, and the intestines. So that blood flow would be reduced during exercise. And then the second pathway is called the neuroendocrine gastrointestinal pathway. And that's where there's an increase in what's called sympathetic activation. So that reduces the GI function by inhibiting uh, gastrointestinal secretions, 
by inhibiting motor function and the contraction of sphincters and blood vessels. Um, so that's that's the other thing that could be going on, or maybe they're both happening at the same time. So conversely, when the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, that stimulates these these activities, these physiological activities. So in a way, it's a bit like it feels to me like things are slowing down and shutting down because of this stress that we're putting ourselves under when we're exercising. Yeah. So that really feeds into that saying rest and digest. So if you rest, reduce the stress, then the digestive system is going to work more optimally. Mm. But obviously, when we are on an endurance run, we're not resting. So we are putting our bodies under stress. And I also think it is worth considering that if you're experiencing exercise-induced IBS symptoms, you may also have some underlying digestive issues, which it it would be worth investigating, I think, um, just to, to ensure that it isn't just the exercise that's causing it. Is there something else underlying that's um that's then triggering it when you're when you're exercising. So Aileen, are there any female factors regarding IBS that we should be thinking about? Well, just that as we mentioned earlier, it does seem that women are more likely to develop um, IBS than men. Um, and also that particularly IBS with constipation is significantly more prevalent among women than men. Um, there's a, a couple of theories around why that might be the case um, that you know we're more prone to develop IBS Um, some studies have indicated that sex hormones affect the regulatory mechanisms of the gut brain axis so how we respond to stress um, the visceral sensitivity and motility of the digestive system Um, it might also affect the intestinal barrier function the immune activation of of the mucosa in the intestines and also the gut microbiota. So the sex hormones seems to be um, a key thing to think about there. Uh, And it's also thought that uh, women tend to be more distressed and embarrassed by changes in bowel habits, so they're more likely to report the symptoms and take actions to resolve them. So, you know, that's a bit of a, a subjective viewpoint um you know but it, it that's just you know another view that perhaps women you know are more prone to deal want to deal with it whereas men just think oh well that's just the way it is and don't yeah. bother about it so they don't report it and they maybe are still having the same issues as women but nobody knows about it yeah yeah i think that's a really interesting point okay thanks Ellie. so let's just have a quick sort of review of what we've discussed so far. So we've learned that IBS is a collection of symptoms which are assessed by medical practitioners when considering a medical diagnosis of IBS. And exercise-induced IBS is experienced by almost 30% of runners uh, negatively impacting on their training and their performance. So let's now review a study looking at potential nutritional approaches. So Aileen, I'm going to hand over to you for that. Okay, so managing IBS is is really a huge area of research and there are absolutely thousands of research studies on the topic. Um, So I I honed in on one one approach and one study for today because um, I could have lost a week (laughs) preparing for today's episode if I'd allow myself to go in lots of different directions. Um, But one uh, one study that um, 
really stood out to me was a 2021 study. So it's a recent study and it was um, an Australian study. And their aim were to investigate the FODMAP content of um, the diet of endurance athletes. And they wanted to examine uh, nutrition surrounding exercise. Uh, They were also looking at the product analysis of some sport nutrition products and also what they called habitual nutrition, so what people were eating on a regular basis. Um, and they were you know, looking at all of that in conjunction with the symptoms that we've just been talking about. Um, so the study is, um, is FODMAP consumption, consumption amongst endurance athletes and relationship to gastro, gastrointestinal symptoms. <laughs> I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, it's, it's definitely worth the read if you're interested in FODMAPs, definitely. Yes. Uh, yeah, that sounds really good, Aileen. So I think maybe it would help if we explained what FODMAP foods are and how they impact on IBS symptoms. So for those of you who don't know what FODMAP stands for, I'll try and, <laughs> and tell you. So it's 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 classed as high fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and poly, polyols. So that's what FODMAP actually um stands for now um so uh, fodmaps are found naturally in many foods so all these names that i've just read out they're found naturally in many foods and they're really a collection of short chain carbohydrates so short chain sugars that are really poorly absorbed fully in the gut which may trigger ibs like symptoms but just in some people this isn't going to affect all people but fodmap foods can affect some people now these carbohydrates are rapidly fermented by bacteria in the intestines to produce gas and that's why a lot of people can um, have the bloating and have the flatulence. Um, Now FODMAPs can also pull water into the gut and water and the production of gas then stretches and bloats the gut to trigger these IBS-like symptoms. So um, um, and I I think that's just like a a brief overview of what FODMAPs is and how it can trigger these symptoms. Um, Aileen, perhaps you could maybe mention some foods which contain these FODMAPs, just to give people a bit bit more of an idea of of these terminologies and and what they mean. Yeah, well, as you say, they're they're everyday foods, really. Um, So you you find them in all sorts of surprising foods. Um, So for instance, uh, fructose containing foods. So that might be fruit. So you could um, find them in apples, mangoes, watermelon, pears, peaches, cherries, you know, all things that, you know, we we eat regularly. Um, You can also find them in honey um, or sometimes um, in substitutes for sugars in prepared foods. so it's interesting to know that fructose is often well absorbed in the presence of glucose. So if it's a, a food that contains both of them, that can actually not be so difficult to absorb. Um, but if there is more glucose and fructose in a food, this might lead to poor absorption of, of fructose. So, you know, I can imagine people thinking, well, how on earth am I going to know what, what that means? Um, but we'll explain that a little bit further on. So some other um, FODMAP foods are lactose-containing foods. So that's um, 
found in milk and milk products. That's a bit more familiar probably with most people. And then the polyol um, containing foods, um, names that you might have read on labels, things like sorbitol and mannitol, um, often found in fruits, vegetables and artificial sweeteners. And then the, the oligosaccharide containing foods tend to be in things like wheat, rye, onion, garlic, legumes, lentils, that type of things. Um, so the typical sort of everyday foods um, that I find probably runners eat quite a lot of that are high in FODMAPs tend to be things like uh, ripe bananas, dates, mango, watermelon, butternut squash, pumpkin, various breads containing wheat, uh, things like pasta, um, avocado, onions, garlic, sweet potato. I mean, they're all things that, mm. you know, on the face of it feel healthy and, you know, they've got good natural carbohydrates in which as runners we, we include in our food plan. Um, Absolutely. But for some people could be um, uh, detrimental to their performance if, um, if, if they have this exercise-induced IBS. So, so that's a bit of an insight we've given to people to what FODMAP is and the types of foods that you'll find these um, FODMAP compounds in. Now, Erin, going back to the study that you were speaking about, what, what did the research actually, researchers find from the study? Well, I suppose reflecting what I've just said there, that FODMAP intake is high amongst endurance athletes, both surrounding exercise, so that's the pre, during, post training and races, and habitually. And that's because runners in this study naturally choose these high FODMAP foods, particularly around the pre-race food choices. So, you know, they might have dinners including wheat-based products like bread and pasta and pizza, uh, which are likely to have, you know, high levels of fructose in. Um, and also many of these products include sauces, so things like onion and garlic. Um, you know, you, you can imagine, you know, you use sauces on pasta and pizzas. Uh, and then thinking about the sort of breakfast type foods that people might have before they go for a run or, or part of their pre-race food plan could be sort of wheat-based, things like bagels or toast. Bananas are a really common breakfast food, which also, you know, might be high in fructans depending on the size of the banana and the ripeness. So, you know, the, that's a, a sort of a general observation that as runners, we, we tend to have a high, high FODMAP intake. And also, they, they looked at the sports nutrition products. So, obviously, this was an Australian um, study. So, they were looking at products in Australia and they didn't actually name any of the products. So, there wasn't any brands in, in the study. Um, but they noted that many of them contained high levels of FODMAP, um, particularly one of the issues with FODMAPs, it's not just the food, it's the quantity of FODMAP foods that you might eat. And when you're having sports nutrition products, you might be having several during uh, an endurance event. Um, so when you're having multiple servings in a relatively short period of time, um, that could, again, lead to a problem for you. Um, so those, those were the two big things that, that sort of stood out uh, to yeah. me when I was reading the study. Yeah, so really what these 
results would suggest is that it would be um, important to try and choose the likes of gels and gummies and sports drinks that are low FODMAP uh, or with a low FODMAP content and, and trying to find them and trying to use those or using natural low FODMAP foods as an alternative uh, during exercise fuelings. It sounds as though it does happen quite often during um um, training when you are eating your uh, people are having a lot of food every 45 minutes roughly is what's recommended so it's quite, it's a lot of food during an exercise so it might just be too much and this study also highlighted really some of the relationships between nutrition product types or FODMAP intakes and lower GI symptoms so for example, the problematic symptoms of um, gastrointestinal cramps and pains, the urge urgency to to defecate, and and also the diarrhea, and and the other thing that they pointed the researchers pointed out was that some runners who experience these GI symptoms are already adapting their food plan plans around training to be low FODMAPs. Now, there's a lot of interesting insights within the study. So I think it's it's worth a read. Um, and if you would like more details and the link to the research, um, we will put it in, for, in, in the show notes for you so that you can read it for yourselves. OK, so moving on from there, we've had a brief overview of what FODMAP foods are and how they might lead to, to these GI symptoms. And I think it's been really interesting to focus on how many of the traditionally high carb foods that we as runners consume actually contain FODMAPs. And also what I would say here is if IBS symptoms are an issue for you, um, we're, what we're going to do next is um, talk about the practicalities of implementing a FODMAP food plan. But before we move on and do that, Aileen, shall we take a quick advert break? Yeah, of course, Karen. So this is the, the moment in the episode where Karen and I take a, a minute to talk to you about what we do outside of the podcast. And I thought today, um, since we're talking about something that's very much a personalised nutrition solution, it might be a good idea to share with you our one-to-one personalised nutrition services. Um, so as we said earlier, digestive issues are a health condition which really varies from person to person and the nutritional approach required is really needs to be personalised. Um, so that, that's why I, I thought it would be a good idea to mention this today. Um, so it's a service uh, for you if you want some focused, personalised advice and support to help you achieve your health goal in this case it might be digestion um, and also your running goals um, we've developed three programs uh, for you to choose from and uh, you can find those by looking at our website which is runnershealthhub.com um, if you look at the top menu bar um, select work with those and there's a drop down menu of the various different things that we offer including one-to-one -one personalized nutrition and then once you go into that you'll find that um there are three three options uh, and we've done that just to um, simplify the choice for you uh, obviously we can always come up with something that would be um, you know another option if you, if you particularly needed it but I would say that if you've got digestive issues the one that you should look at is the nutrition foundations plan um, 
and that would really help you focus in on whatever your digestive goals are. And we also have a personalized runner's food plan. So if, if you're generally healthy and you want to focus on running results, um, then you can do that. And we also have a nutrition for injury recovery as well. So if you're recovering from an injury, we can do something to focus on that side of it too. So if, if it's something that's interested, um, interesting to you, uh, what we suggest you do is book a complimentary call with us. And that gives us a chance to have a one-to-one chat to find out about your goals. And then we can suggest the best way of working with us uh, to help you get the results. So the booking link is on the Work With Us page. All you need to do is select a time that you want to have a chat with us. There's a, a mini questionnaire to fill in that just gives us a bit of background. And um, and if, if you're happy to go ahead, we'll uh, get you booked in and, and start working on your personal health goals. Great. Thanks, Aileen. And just following on from what you've just spoken about, I just wanted to mention how we would approach investigating underlying digestive issues from a functional nutrition perspective. Now, the first steps, as with all nutritional consultations, is really to gather information about your health history, your symptoms, your food and your lifestyle, and also how the symptoms are impacting on your quality of life and on your running. Now, for clients with digestive issues, sometimes we may suggest functional screening tests where we investigate um, the digestive function, potential bacterial, viral or um, parasitic infections, and also your uh, gut microbiome status. So we would look at all of this. Um, Aileen, what, what are the typical steps you'd then consider with a client? Well, I think once we've gathered all the information that you mentioned there, we'd create a plan which would um, involve focusing on a number of, of issues. So um, in functional medicine, there's something called the 5R approach, but I'll just talk through some of the things that we would consider. So we might need to either temporarily or permanently eliminate certain foods to help reduce inflammation and and reduce the symptoms. Um, We then look at how we could resolve if there were any infections or if there was any dysbiosis. So that's where there's an imbalance of the microbiome. Um, We might also look at how we could support your digestive function Um, So we do that on the basis of looking at how well you were digesting and absorbing macronutrients and micronutrients. So that's the fat, the protein and carbohydrates and and vitamins and minerals. We'd also um, move on to rebalancing the gut microbiome. And by doing that, we'd be adding in probiotics and prebiotic foods to encourage the proliferation and the growth and the diversity of bacteria. Um, and we also, another aspect of, of the program would be using healing nutrients to repair and restore the gut lining, which often can have been inflamed or compromised due to the symptoms that you've been experiencing. And then finally, uh, we look at how you can rebalance and maintain a healthy digestive system going forward. Now, I know that sounds a lot of things to do. And sometimes it's not necessary to do every single step. Um, It depends on your own personal set of symptoms and um, what we discover if if we um, do an analysis. Um, But it's really important, I think, to get to the root cause and fully resolve the issues for for long-term health as well as uh, to help you get back out on your run. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that five R approach that you've just spoken about, Aileen, is a is a great place to to start that healing process, sort of that removing, reintroduction, uh, reinoculation, and um, the repair. It, it it all works together. And um, I don't know about you, but but clients I have worked with using the the five R approach just see so much benefit from it in the long term. Well, it, it leaves nothing uncovered. I think that's the thing. You, you go through everything and, and there's a system and a process to it that I think most people can understand the logic about yes. taking your time and doing it thoroughly. Because mm-hmm. um, if you don't, you just will get a reoccurrence of symptoms again and again. Yeah, yeah. So, Aileen, just moving on, can you explain how adapting the FODMAP content of your food plan can help with these IBS symptoms? So some people have more difficulty than others in processing FODMAP foods, of which, you know, there are many. And that is the really tricky part. How, how do you know which foods are causing the problem? How would an individual know? Well, um, I suppose the FODMAP diet falls into the step that I mentioned where we, you know, I said right at the beginning, we temporarily or permanently eliminate certain foods. um, And that's really to help reduce the inflammation and the symptoms. So sometimes you can get a temporary relief by doing that. And that can help just calm everything down while you do some of the other things that you're going to do. With regards to FODMAPs, it's always advised that you do this under the supervision of a nutritional therapist or dietitian. Uh, And the process is that you would start by eliminating FODMAP foods um, for a period of two to six weeks um, to um, get that sort of even playing field, I suppose you would call it. Um, And then you go into... um, what's called the re-challenge phase, which can take six to eight weeks. So it's quite a big investment in time. But as I say, it's uh, all of this is worth the long-term result. And what you do during that re-challenge phase is reintroduce FODMAP foods one by one to identify which of the FODMAPs you can tolerate and which actually trigger the symptoms. And as I said earlier, Sometimes it's the quantity of a specific food which causes the symptoms, not the food itself. So, you know, the job of a, if you're a nutritionist is to help you identify that and help you find a way of introducing as many foods back that uh, you can tolerate. And um, that is something that's sort of very personalized to you. And then the final part, the adapted diet is, as I say, where you personalize the FODMAP to suit you. Now, you know, I've got clients who live on a, an adapted FODMAP diet and have done for years, and it it's done in a way that it's not restrictive and it is healthy for them and they thrive on it. Um, you know, that with everything, there is a, an unhealthy way of doing it and some people restrict everything and never go back and then that doesn't help them. Um, so those are, the, those are the three steps that the plan takes um what i personally do is i always recommend uh, something called the monash food fodmap app to clients and that was something developed by the monash university in melbourne australia uh, and the researchers there um, are really the world leaders in this field of study and they've got such fantastic educational resources and they've developed a great app and that really helps 
it makes it easy for people to put it into practice. Um, I mean, I, when I first started practicing, you know, I had my own handouts and, and then I just realized actually they are at the top of their game and it's much easier <laughs> for everybody to use them because they're constantly researching and constantly updating uh, the app. Um, so it's, it's a really great tool and it's available at quite a low cost. It's about seven pounds or 13 Australian dollars. Um, again, I'll put the links into the show notes so that people can have them, but you'll easily find it on Google. Um, now, what I like about it is that, that there's some really helpful features. It works on a traffic light system. So you can look up a food and find out whether it's got high, medium or low FODMAPs. So when you're learning about FODMAPs, I think that's really helpful. Um And there's lots of recipes and other information and education that might be helpful. So you can quite quickly get an overview of what the FODMAP food plan is. And, um, you know, there's lots of little bits of information that can help you. The other thing that they have is that there's a filter for the country that you're living in um, because the amount of FODMAPs in products. So they, they don't just list fresh foods. They might list some products as well that are you might typically find in your local supermarket and that those products vary from country to country so that's quite um, useful too so it's really it's my go-to I would say for FODMAP information. Um, A really supportive tool um, and and sounds as though it's very user-friendly as well which is 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 always good. But I think what I would stress again, Aileen, is what you said earlier, that the FODMAPs diet is not something that you want to be going on to long term. It should be done with a professional for a for a period of time until you work out which of the FODMAP foods is affecting you as an individual. And then moving on to what you were describing as that adapted diet um, personalized to you and which FODMAP foods are affecting you because like you say I think a lot of people do just go on to these diets and then you know they're creating other health issues because they could potentially be deprived of many other key nutrients that they need so that would be a big takeaway I think from from this yeah, yeah it's really really important mm-hmm. are there any other things um Karen that you think would be worth sharing um from the study we've been talking about? Yeah, I think there are a few things really to consider which, um, you know, were shared in that study that we've been talking about. And the ones I just wanted to highlight are that when considering when considering the elimination diet, this may be difficult, I think, for athletes who want to continue training during the time especially if calories and other nutrients are not sufficiently replaced. So advice from a nutritionist, sports nutritionist, would be really helpful. And remember, the elimination period, like I've just said, is not forever. Um, So if symptoms are a major problem, it might be worth the effort just to go through that phase. And what I would suggest there is maybe out of um, competition season, it might be a time that you could you could um, investigate the the FODMAP foods and the FODMAP diet for a period of time. Now, an alternative approach would be to initially identify which high FODMAP foods or high sports foods are being consumed at a really high level habitually so every day um, or just every time you're running an endurance run or whatever and eliminate these first 
um, whilst swapping with an alternative law, low FODMAP foods, because it could just be that it's this one habitual food that you're using in training that's creating the symptom. So just by removing that food, replacing it with another one that's low FODMAP, that might be all that you need to do. And then another approach um, would be to involve um, or would involve acute elimination of um, high FODMAP foods during a period of, say, 24 to 72 hours before any key strenuous workouts or competitions. So removing them completely for that period of time so that um, the body has had, a t- has had time to rest. And then if you need to use them for that time um, of training there and, or competition, then you can. And when going through the reintroduction phase, it is really important to track your symptoms so that you can try and identify which of the FODMAP foods you are able to tolerate and those that are triggering the symptoms. So these are just some ideas of how you could best get over the symptoms Um without it interrupting your training and your competitions. So I have to say that kind of really takes us towards the end of today's episode. And really just to summarise, we've suggested um, and we do suggest working with a nutritionist to supervise the FODMAP diet, don't do it on your own, and and, um, to ensure that you are getting all the nutrients and the energy that you'll need for your training whilst also following FODMAPS process. So I think that would be one of the key takeaways from today. But speaking about takeaways, Aileen, um, what what are your key takeaways from today? Okay, so um, the key takeaways are that, you know, thinking about um, IBS, um, you you should really get it checked out by a medical uh, practitioner um, and they will measure your symptoms against uh, the medical criteria and uh, decide whether you've got a diagnosis or not. Typical symptoms tend to be intestinal or stomach cramps and pain, bloating, flatulence, diarrhea, constipation. And the severity of symptoms really does vary from person to person. Um, it's an estimated that over 30% of endurance runners experience exercise-induced IBS symptoms. So as you pointed out, that's one in three practically. So uh, no wonder it's the main topic of conversation at running clubs. But, uh, you know, instead of it being a everybody makes a joke of it, it's like something we can resolve. So I think that would be my takeaway is do something, do something about it. Um, FODMAP foods may be a trigger of IBS symptoms in some people, but I have to say it's not the only thing. Um, So, you know, often when I'm working with people, it's not always necessary to do a FODMAPs food plan and a a professional will be able to make that assessment for you. But if you do um, need to do a FODMAP um, food plan, uh, there are three phases. Uh, So the first phase is eliminating FODMAP foods for two to six weeks. Then you go into a re-challenge phase for six to eight weeks where you, you can reintroduce foods one by one uh, to work out which foods you tolerate and which trigger symptoms. And remember, it's sometimes the quantity of the specific food which causes the symptoms rather than the food itself. And then finally, um, you move to an adapted diet where you personalize the FODMAP diet to suit you. 
Um, just another shout out for the Monash Food app, FODMAP app. It's really good. I've got it on my phone all the time and uh, it's a really easy thing to look up. Um, and also um, look at the sports products, check their labels and um, look out for FODMAP content. Um, and there are some um, products that are specially formulated because I think the uh, running community are, are requiring some of these products. So uh, it's worth checking out what's available. Um, and I think just the final message is don't put up with the IBS-like symptoms. Uh, there could be an underlying reason and um, your professional nutritionist can investigate that and help you with it. And uh, as you know, Karen and I do this kind of work and we'd really be really happy to help you if you need help. All you need to do is book a complimentary call with us and um, we can discuss it. And just one final message that FODMAPS is just one approach. There are others. And um, that's all from me, Karen. Great. Thank you very much, Aileen. Um, really enlightening conversation as always. And remember, everyone, don't let nutrition be the limiting factor in your running performance. Well, this brings us to the end of another episode of She Runs, Eats, Performs, brought to you by Runners Health Hub, helping female runners to be fitter, faster and stronger. We really hope you've enjoyed listening and you'll join us again soon. In the meantime, we'd be so grateful if you check us out on iTunes and leave a review. And once again, thanks for listening and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Bye for now. We'd like to introduce you to our show sponsor, Amazing Jane Activewear for Women's Changing Bodies, recommended as best leggings for running by Women's Fitness Magazine. We think they have everything a female runner needs. First of all, they are high compression to support your legs and bum. They have a deep waistband so they stay up and they don't move about when you run. There's a handy left pocket for your phone and a zip pocket on the waistband which is great for your cards or a key. They also have a hidden tracker pocket for storing a GPS tracking device, and this is a unique safety feature. All Amazing Jane designs, including tanks and tops, are cut to skim, not cling, giving you confidence to look and feel great and focus on performance. Karen and I have been trialing wearing their range for a few months, and we can happily recommend them. So if you'd like to try Amazing Jane Activewear, please use our listeners' special discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases at amazingjane.com. Amazing Jane ship around the world, so please check their website for details. Thanks again to Amazing Jane Activewear for being our show sponsor and for sharing discount code RHH10 for 10% off all purchases. Mm -hmm.